Hi, welcome to our first ever interview with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Today, Adam and I welcome Ignacio Choi. He is an ABD um, in comparative literature at Stony Brook University. Uh, he specializes in world literature, specifically literary history from a non-European perspective. And he's going to tell us a lot about uh, unpacking that idea. So uh, welcome, Ignacio. We're really happy to have you here. Hi, You're welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me on the show. Yes. Yeah, so maybe just even starting to unpack what you mean by literary history from a non-European perspective. Yeah. Um, so uh, first, I'm, uh, I'm ABD from Stony Brook, but I'm sort of not in the program right now. Um, and but uh, yeah. So when I spoke. Um, some time ago, I, I happened to take a class uh, called the Global Novel. And uh, that was really looking at different books that might qualify as a Global Novel. And sort of the whole point of the class was that none of them did. Uh, we sort of like went through all of them, you know, ranging from, uh, you know, post-colonial literature, like slave narratives, uh, post-modern novels. And none of it fit the bill, but it really got me uh, into this question and looking for it. And there's a very basic fact when we talk about literature in the American university or in, or in European universities too. Um, it's a very narrow set. Basically, traditionally, literary history and literary studies just focus on one language and they focus on the language in the country where you are. And then if you are in a country of the British Empire, it's, it's British literature. If you're in the Americas, it's English of all kinds of varieties. And that's just about it. So comparative literature also started with a narrow uh, set of languages, which are basically Western European languages, basically uh, very early on, just French and English, and then you know Italian, German, Spanish, and so on, but uh, all very constrained. And then people constantly think about this now in theoretical and methodological terms. What happens if you expand this field or outward? And then eventually you can no longer like think of it as just expanding and co-opting and bringing in. You have to like rethink the whole thing. So what is actually European, uh, uh, what is world literature that is no longer just European literature uh, that doesn't have this sort of provinciality like, like branching out and co-opting it. And so what would be a truly planetary literature look like? Um, so there's a lot of questions there. Um, yeah, that's, that's for starters. Yeah. And does this come from, you know, a positionality of geographic location, or maybe if you want to tell everyone listening um, where you had traveled from to get to Stony Brook University, that might yes, um, so you know, help to understand so, more. So I'm from Germany, um, and that means in one sense I'm from Europe. Uh, so I have the whole European perspective. Um, I have a German perspective too. But so my obviously my first language is German into first literature, I read it's German, which in America, in some sense, is already a provincial colonial, like colonials maybe too much, but it's already a provincial language, right? It's not one of the most read languages. It's sort of far out. Most people do not know it very well. So you come to this place and you discover everybody is talking about English literature and you bring this. So because I also have a Korean background, um, that adds to it. And sort of, so international students, whether they study literature or not, um, immediately discovered they have to double register. They come from one place going to another place and sort of half of what they know or more than half of what they know isn't really present in any way. So currently the, the American university and sort of Western universities have this model of area studies and co-option. So they have main literatures like, you know, English and French, and then they have uh, specialists that uh, you know, uh, Orientalists or East Asianists or Africanists, and then um, they go out, bring their 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 knowledge into, and then they make lists. Um, but but what people really experience um, when they come from other countries that it, it goes way beyond that. So and and really think that think of what what literature would be without this sort of European focus, American focus is uh, is something quite like complex and hard to figure out. Um, Ignacio, what goes beyond? Yeah, so uh, there, there are two models from an American point of view or from a Western point of view of talking about non-European literature. One is 
bringing the outside in, bringing it in from the cold. And that's, uh, you can see that in anthologies of world literature, which 30, 40 years ago had basically all Western and then one or two non-Western texts like the Gilgamesh Epos or maybe one Chinese poem. And then since the last decades, they, they keep adding more, bring them in, add more models. So that's co-option, right. right? You have a very, and co-option also means that the 90% of the text or the, the vast bulk of the text are always going to be the text from, um, from English literature. And you have the most differentiation there, you have the most genre there, you have the most theory there. And this really creates a lopsided impression, mainly that, oh, literature really is mostly English literature and the rest is just like other stuff, you know, on the margins, which obviously is, is so not true. But like this has been the way books and the materials and the courses were structured. So the other way, the other way is if you come from a place outside of that area, of, outside of the English language area, you grew up in a different literature and you come here and you have this like knowledge or memory or just maybe just sort of the, the upbringing of the literature in your mind. And you come here and you don't quite know where to place it. There, there isn't really a complete place for it. There isn't really a complete dialogue. Uh, lots of things you know, nobody else knows. Uh, lots of things you read, nobody else reads. So finding a place for that. And then, um, so one old way of, of approaching this things, you know, like taking one thing from the English tradition and then taking one thing from the outside and then like holding them together or several things. Um, but there are sort of more ways to approach this, um, more ways to think about it and more ways to sort of like get a whole picture of the situation. Yeah. And we don't really have a, yeah. Well, and I was just, cause I know you started this with a certain frustration you were finding in grad seminars. And I don't need you to kvetch necessarily and yeah, list yeah. all of the courses one by one. But yeah. what you're saying is there's different techniques. Um, yeah. Like having a European text, maybe then with a text that you wouldn't necessarily think of. So did that kind of framework come from your own authentic way of approaching pedagogy or was it something that you started to see in your graduate seminars? Uh, I, I, I guess it's all of it together, right? I mean, obviously grad school influenced me profoundly in ways that, um, in many different ways. So, you know, what I learned, I learned in grad school, but um, learning in grad school also means you discover things that you didn't know and other people didn't know, hopefully, and uh, you have surprises. So one of the surprises that I keep coming back to is sort of the incompatibility of genres and, and literary forms and literary structures. So you learn a whole set of methodologies when you study Western literature. We start with Aristotle, you do the whole history of literary criticism, you know, all the way to the novel, to the contemporary situation. Um, and then you go to other places and you, um, or you come from other places and you discover like, this doesn't quite fit, mm -hmm. you know? And sort of the, the chauvinistic way would be to say, oh, none of these other countries have novels. That's like a 19th century era. We can't really talk like that, right? So we discover there's something with the categories. So in some sense, the novel is a very local category. That's in the way that um, someone said this funny, in politics is really very local politics. You know, it has really nothing to do with the world. But so in that sense, um, literary studies, uh, literary methodology uh, has been local until now. Well, so I, the, have the, a, I have a question about yeah. how you how you sort of trace the history of the novel uh, throughout the world, given that the novel is essentially, I mean, I don't know, I don't know, I think we can say this definitively. It's, it's, a, it's an ancient Greek invention, right? The first novels come out of ancient, uh, come out of, come out of the Greco-Roman world about 2000 years ago. It's very interesting topic. So there is a, a history of the novel, which is part of the European curriculum, uh, also the part of the, the European sort of, um, sort of literary theory. It's a very interesting story. It's a very rich story. It's a very compelling story. And it does start Certainly. with the Greeks. It does start with the Greeks and then... Um, and it, it, it shows sort of the transition from the epos where you have all the... Um, 
the grand story cycles, you know, in verse and um, let's let's quickly yeah. let's quick um, yeah. let's quickly add a footnote. So epos is the Greek word for story that yes. has been sort of grouped. Uh, I mean, basically, it's it's the it's the basis for the word epic poetry, right? Yes, and so it ends up not having. It ends up having both a common word and a technical, uh, a common uh, definition and a technical definition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just mean it sort of in the conventional sense of like the Homeric epics, right? Got like it. like large story cycles which are in verse, which are, um, you know, written down, but most likely were told, you know, in oral poetry. So, and there's a there's a jump from that to like written prose texts that are read in broader society, not just in the aristocratic courts, and so on. So. Hence, the, the, the sort of the, the theoretical story of the European novel starts, and then it goes on, and then it goes to the Middle Ages, you know, with all sorts of like vernacular literature, and then it goes to the early modern period, which is sort of the, the glorious official birth of the novel in the picaresque novel, uh, and then it comes, comes to its fulfillment in sort of the 19th novel, right? So s such and such might a story be told with like a lot of very interesting, very complex things. So if you go into the rest of the world, you might find you may find one or two sort of places where you see similar things. So you go to medieval Japan; they have the genre of the monogatari, which are prose narratives, which are you know broad and they're broadly read and so on. So there, people say, "Oh, you know, the tale of Genji, the tale of the Haike, uh, the the Diary of the Firefly." These are all you know Japanese medieval novels, and you you do this, and you sort of already have a sleight of hand and it doesn't you, you're sort of extending your your european thing there and then you say oh india doesn't have any novels you know and in the 19th century this was a very sort of common thing uh and it had implications for colonial administration for uh, education etc etc so there, there's something quite problematic with that a eurocentric um, right you're pointing yeah. to this eurocentrism that exists well yeah you, spare, so, spare a thought for the 19th century Indian novel, which is, yeah. I mean, for my, for my money, um, one of the greatest novels that are written is a novel called Gora oh, yeah. by Rabindranath Tagore, yeah. which is from the 1880s. Yeah. It's, it's such a fascinating story because um, Tagore's uncle invented a basically monotheistic, non-caste version of Hinduism. Yeah, yeah. To which, to which Tagore himself was uh, an adherent. And Gora is, if you can imagine, a, a Jane Austen novel where the, the, um, the obstacle to getting married is not class and econ uh, economics and so on, but rather um, that one, one person is Hindu and the other is uh, what's called Brahmo Samaj. That then you end up with the novel Gora, and 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 yet the characters are amazing. The plot is, even though it's just people talking, like a Jane Austen novel, it's yeah. unbelievably amazing. And you can see how he was he was influenced by the English novel of his era. But you can also, so he, here's a yeah. Sorry, here's a really also, fast yeah. No, whatever. No, go ahead. I think we're getting. I think we're getting a little yeah. too. Like, you know, yeah. I mean, going back to just the point, I wanted to yeah. jump in a little earlier, but I think it's important. Like we're getting very clear examples of so many novels that graduate students in the literature department at Stony Brook, I would say graduate students in most literature departments, they have no idea what those novels are. I mean, yeah. I didn't know about the tale of Genji to- Gen Genji. Genji, sorry, thank you. Um, <laughs> you still don't. <laughs> okay, thank you for that. Sorry. Um, Sorry. So, elitist a little, but okay. <laughs> so, uh, see, Adam proved a point there. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I think that's important for listeners to know. There is a certain, like, you're not allowed to mispronounce a word, you're going to be judged. And I really think we can't have that type of rhetoric anymore because it so excludes people who, you know, just want to get their foot in the door. And you know, this isn't like me well, now trying to drag true. Adam, but uh, I think you're it's welcome also, to. Well, and I think Ignacio, you really point to we have a pro seminar course um, in the literature department, and 
if we talk about world literature, it's only under post-colonial uh, theory. And it's basically like, here's Franz Fanon, uh, who wrote about post-colonialism and theorized it, and okay, good night. <laughs> I mean, it's it's there's 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 a lot to this sort of issue. I mean, there is a reason why um, postcolonial sort of theory and postcolonial literature has an important role in in comparative literature. And um, so, what Adam said, uh, a late nineteenth century novel by Tagore, this sort of great like reformer and literary person. Um, who sort of is in correspondence with the English novel at the same time, right? So that yes. brings up another topic, you can't look at literature's um, sort, of, sort of in this archaic authenticity apart from their, uh, their interdependence and their influence, but also just a of colonialism and sort of the modern history. So when I say, oh, the, 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 the European like, like category of the novel doesn't quite fit, it doesn't mean that it's not influential even as misfit or in, in whatever form, um, once there is modernity, once there is sort of um, the expansion of the world market around the globe, once, there, once there's this global reach um, in whatever uneven form, there is the novel with all the different uh, ways it plays out, yeah, right? So we can't ever go back. Um, and in some sense, there never was sort of this authentic literature outside this 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 mutual complex of relations and yeah. of course these relations are like have been uneven for such a long time that uh we, there is really a reason for looking at them under this sort of colonialism so you could argue that a novel like tagoras which i haven't read uh but i've read similar novels from the period right uh indian novels uh like uh anandamat or uh umrao Jan, which are all like sort of like 1880s 1890s novels they are all about sort of issues of Indian society um, that seem like domestic, but if you look at it in the way they're phrased, they use a sort of a new idiom, they, they, they use sort of a, a, a modern genre like a novel, um, they're really addressing anxieties about modernization and nationalism. Mm -hmm. Like where's the country going in connection versus the English? How do you strengthen the society? What yeah. does family mean? How, what does community mean? How to reproduce and so on. I, I, I find that um, there is a case to be made for like a modern category of the novel, uh, modern in the sense that um, with colonialism and modernization, the, the category really is ubiquitous. Uh, it is in every place and it is in every place in, in ways that are local and regional and global. So every novel that's been written after sort of 1850 um, really sort of reflects on the whole world in some way, you know, that's to figure out. Yeah. Well, my question is, why do we have to play the space race game? Like, why do we have to play who got there first? Who cares? Like, I don't understand the point of that type of inquiry. Yeah, it's well, not that. It's, it's, sorry. There is, there is, there is the problem that, that novels are, by their nature, uh, narrative. Um, one of the things that I do um, with my students is we engage in something. Uh, this, this is going to have a point. Uh, stick with me for a moment. We engage in something um, called writing meditation, where you try to write at a constant pace for a set amount of time, and you just glean the topmost layer of your thoughts and you put them in writing. So you might end up following a particular thought for an amount of time, or you might end up going from my foot itches to I'm hungry, to I'm bored, to my hand is cramping, um, et cetera, right? And, it, and, and what, you, what you realize as you're doing this is how many thoughts and how many sensations go unexpressed uh, in this process, right? And so I bring this up as a sort of metaphor for how we end up talking about the novel, right? A novel is similar to that process in that you can only tell part of the story right? Otherwise it would be infinitely long. And the way that we construct narrative is that process of winnowing. You cannot have a narrative unless you leave enormous amounts out. And the, the problem, the challenge, the sort of glory of these um, postmodern accounts of literature is that we're trying not to leave anybody out, which is of course an impossible task which of course means we're trying to abandon narrative 
in telling the story of narrative, which is not really possible. Um, but there is, there is definitely room for, um, I guess, for using the word novel to describe all of these, um, all of these prose narratives from the, um, from the medieval Japanese traditions you were mentioning to the Icelandic traditions that are um, somewhat well known to, uh, I mean, just any, anywhere. Um, I mean, part of the problem also is that not everywhere are these things written down? The, like Ignacio, what are your thoughts about um, how you would approach a world literature course? Like say, okay, I've just got assigned a world literature course. What would be your best advice? One of my favorite questions uh, and one of my favorite sort of like, like fun things to think about, what, what would be like a good syllabus for a world literature course? Um, I think there, there's two aspects. One is sort of learn from putting things together, learn by sort of contrast, like, like teaching things together that are very different and learn from the difference about sort of the limitation and the regionality and sort of the, you know, of categories and, you know, theoretical concepts. Mm -hmm. um, so, so basically pick text from different traditions that aren't similar something so yeah. for example uh like pair something like um uh, aristotle's poetics with the um indian uh treatise on theater the nasya shasta if i say this correctly i'm not gonna um, know but sure if i, I really i can i really i really should know i i always like to scramble the word um which is basically on one hand it's similar it's also sort of uh a treatise on literature and the arts and theater, but it has sort of a very different direction. It's quite interesting to compare them. Yeah, and I just um, want to let, yeah. let the listeners know real quick, yeah. Adam had to drop out. So as you're listening to oh. this, Adam has now fallen out. So it's, I'm uh, in conversation with Ignacio, but so, keep going, Ignacio. Oh, so that's one thing. But the other thing, uh, it's, so and that comes back to the question of origin and modernity. Um, I really wouldn't want so to be stuck in this idea of the different classics from around the world, right? Because for me, this is co-option. I, I really wouldn't want this to be like a great works of world literature course. I, I, would, I would like to sort of teach an awareness how something like the world and world literature comes into being through modernity. And by modernity, I mean sort of like the long modernity since the 16th century, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, so it's it's only once the world, once the world really physically comes into connection, and as Marx says, you know, like an actual world market is created through European colonialism and so on, that um, you have sort of uh, the possibility of even like like you categories and then the first thing you discover you teach them and then of course they're not universal you know in the sense that there are local things happening uh which are sort of next to each other contiguous like there's a novel here there's something that is something like a novel but not quite you know in the next country over or in the next region over um and uh so you look at those yeah well and um i'll speak from my background right now i taught world literature um, and the main type of inquiry a lot of us in um, the literature department or an English department have is you feel like you have to do everything under the kitchen sink. And however, a lot of instructors in everything they teach, they do what they've learned from other instructors. So I, I feel like this is also an inheriting question um, meaning, what kind of texts are you inheriting from your mentors, from your um, teachers in your life? And there's this certain openness sometimes. I, I felt I had to be open to, okay, well, I'm going to teach a little of the Bhagavad Gita, even though I've never learned it. And there's a certain nervousness I have as an instructor when I might not... I used to have the nervousness. I don't think I do now. but I think I've learned it's really helpful to actually teach something you've never read before because your students are going to be 
you're all close readers together. And it kind of just reconfigures uh, the dynamic in the classroom. Does that make sense in a way? It, it does. And there's another really sort of big, how do we read and what can we read and how comfortable are we reading? So uh, there's this whole debate about like, uh, first of all, a lot of these texts we have to read in translation. So there's this whole thing about is translation possible? Is it a good thing? Is it a good thing for, you know, people in the West who just like read foreign texts, which might be very complicated to read where, might it, where that might be a big issue. So I would definitely talk about all these questions. Um, but then I would also pair it with sort of other reading experiences from outside, right? Because a lot of people around the world read English literature because, you know, the U.S. is a powerful country, Western, Western countries are powerful and wealthy. Uh, so there's sort of a hegemonial influence there. There's, there's a need for people to read English, to speak English. And so these things are taught all over the world. So what's it like, you know, if you have to sort of read Shakespeare um, or Jane Austen, uh, uh, and you're in China or in India, you know, or in Kenya. And uh, so what is that reading experience for you? And I, so I, I would couple these heterogeneous experiences and sort of theorize around that a little bit yeah. and then recognize it's not, it's not symmetrical, right? There's definitely an unevenness there. Uh, so when you read a text like the Bhagavad Gita or the Tale of Genji, mm -hmm. um, there's some stuff going on that's, quite different from if a student in Shanghai reads Jane Austen. And I, I but I think there, there's a lot of things that will come up looking at that. Yeah. And that, that is hard, it's hard work. It's and I hard love work. that yeah. because it reminds me, um, when I went to International Whitman Week in Paris a few years ago, and we had a whole um, workshop dedicated to translation. And um, for those from the US, I started to realize, wow, we've never really had to do different translation type of interpretive community building activities. But then when I realized, oh, I'm going to try and use my Spanish skills. That's the language that I tested um, with at Stony Brook. Um, it was so interesting because it just opened my own theoretical ideas about queerness. And what does that mean in terms of languages and queerness in Whitman's poetry? that it really does start to beg the question of um, acceptable language or why is some language censored? And it just, it expands your theoretical knowledge. It doesn't, like, I, I guess that's my frustration when, I know you're not always a fan of the word centering, but I think <laughs> it's my frustration with, um, when an author is put on a pedestal um, and, only seen in one language as like this very monolithic reading. But I think you've just really broken down those walls. With yeah, and so, so if you, if we could have some, like take on this whole thing of reading. Um, so you could say that all acts of reading uh, happen with in very sort of definite settings and they're different institutions and rules, you know, not legal rules, but sort of like, the rules of everyday like practice. Um, and uh, just looking at these rules, the minutia of rules um, around the country, around the world really, around the different countries is, uh, would be quite interesting, right? And you, you realize that nothing happens out of context and, and reading and studying literature doesn't, um, and just to look at that and draw conclusions of that. So um, I had an example just now. But yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, it'll come back to me. Oh, okay. But yeah. um, I think I'm going to switch gears a little, if you're comfortable with this question. I think for the listeners, it'd be helpful to know that yeah. um, the department that you started in is not the department that currently exists. So well, there, can you speak there, to that uh, history a little? Of just your the department. The department that I started in uh, does not exist anymore at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it just dissolved. And... Uh, there's the history of the university there and uh, the problem with the current university uh, in a very specific way and in a very general way. Yeah. And when was comparative literature, do you know when it was first um, isolated as a department? Yeah. Um, so um, it arises sort of in, you know, Western Europe uh, and it has to do 
with sort of the formation of post-revolutionary nationalism. So like mid 19th century, you know, 1840s, 1850s. So it's the rediscovery or the sort of construction of the first time of national literatures. Um, you know, the French discovered their medieval literature, the, the Germans discovered their medieval epics, uh, and, um, you know, the idea of like authentic you know, national literatures, like, like coming from Herder. Um, so this, this all sort of laid the ground for the systematic study. And then um, pretty quickly, once you sort of talk about national canons and national things, um, you do that sort of in contrast with the other countries. So that's why it's really the English, the French, the Germans uh, who first sort of are competitive. And the comparison is just about that, you know, and then I just thought, oh, if we have epic poetry that founds national literature, maybe every country has that, right? And then some countries discovered they didn't have that and they wrote it, you know, they just made stuff up or they sort of digged so deeply and said, oh, here, finally, we have our national epos, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, um, but th that's where it came from, yeah. yeah. And what, so what's your thought that, um, so the current shape of what happened to the comparative literature faculty is, well, sadly, if they didn't have tenure, they uh, were, um, I hate to say they were just, they disappeared, but uh, they were, they had to find other, prof uh, other universities, but the tenured faculty have been reincorporated into English. And I find that really interesting. And so have, ha so have film scholars. And it's like what had happened. So everyone listening, Stony Brook, the English department once housed scholars who Right in the 1960s, 70s, they were those who did film, those who did um, comparative lit projects, those who did queer gender studies projects. But then those started to branch out, and like a lot of that had to do with the 1970s culture wars, and you know which research should be done in an English department. So, what are your thoughts on like now that there's a reincorporation happening? Uh, hey, that's a lot there, but I uh, I want to laugh and sort of make some remark about that. I mean, I'm happy that you know people who uh, lost their department, uh, some of the professors like still have jobs. Um, you know, I know some of them who weren't tenured yet uh, had to sort of scramble um, and and look, and it's it's very hard. Um, so, I mean, English departments at some point departments did everything right but it it does sort of so and when you do film or queer studies or postmodern studies the many English departments where you do that and then the English department sort of has been sort of accommodating to that but um, it was fun to have a complete department around mm -hmm. and there were some problems it was a little big uh, it had many many different things going on maybe too many but um, it's it was just very interesting uh, because it brings in heterogeneity, right? You you have people working on incompatible things, and if they talk to each other, sort of, it's a very interesting effect. You know, you have to sort of you talk to someone and say, oh, I work on this, and I say, well, this doesn't I did I have for that, and that's a productive process, right? Uh, I hope that's going on still. So I don't know. Yeah, uh, well, yeah. Well, I wish them the best. I definitely, I mean, I have someone from Comparative Lit on my defense, um, not defense, on my dissertation, dissertation team, um, who will be at the defense. But um, it's been interesting because um, it's a scholar who specializes in um, ancient Greek literature. Well, I think specifically Byzantine Greek literature. but. Um, my work deals with ancient Greek motifs and Whitman and homoeroticism. And it's been so fascinating because a lot of the times in the English department, we wouldn't have someone who has that type of translation um, uh, rigor. So I think it's really enhanced my project, but yeah, speaking to how is it, is it going to my, you know, my optimism is it'll help everyone's pedagogical um, skills and they'll incorporate more texts that aren't Eurocentric. I mean, that is like, that's the optimistical 
Um, I don't think it's going to be a one size fits all right away. I think it's taking time. And I definitely think there's a little, there's a tug of war happening. Um, I don't really see the tug of war because I'm not part and I don't, you know, out of sight, out of mind in certain ways, especially what we're going through now with the current crises. And I think maybe to bring us to that point, because there is a lot of tensions right now, whether it be on the, I'll, I'll take the job market, for example. So if you're comfortable with it, you began this interview, Ignacio, uh, saying that you're currently not um, at the university. Can you speak to maybe what, um, why that is? Oh, uh, yeah, I'm not affiliated right now with the university and my dissertation is uh, unwritten, it's unfinished. So I'm looking for a job right now. So uh, not in the university anyway. So in some sense, I sort of detached from the university. But uh, uh, so it's a, I mean, it's a complicated topic because in some way, even if I'm not looking for a job in the university, it never quite goes away. Year of their their like of doing um, you know, theory of of doing research, of having like-minded people, um, and knowing like-minded people is is a very cool idea. But, um, it it's something that's that's quite unique and great. Um, I don't know in the world, you know. And the institutions right now they're they're all in crisis. You know, this is sort of like a perennial thing since the last twenty years. Universities in crisis. Um, in terms of money, jobs, you know, mission, etc. Um, so I don't know if the structure of the university will remain or will be changed or will be transformed or will go away. But I certainly hope that the community of scholars and uh, you know the idea of doing studies and research will continue in some way. Yeah, well, and I think it's also it's it's up to us to sort of figure out um, how we are going to do that. Exactly, yeah. and I know we've talked about it before that we're shaping. We're really um, we have to be agents of our career because we're really in a transition stage, whether it be with the digital technology, whether it be with public scholarship, like the jobs that we are really eager for don't actually exist in, um, I, there's no uh, cookie cutter type of job that exists like that right now. So we're in a certain type of uh, transformation transformational moment. And um, I think that everything that you've studied and learned, you're carrying that with you. And I think you're right, even if you're not going to apply for a university job, I mean, I'll just say this statistic real quick, which we don't have to go on and on about um, the collapse of the job market, but I think the current statistics said that there are 900 history PhDs currently going on, or in this year, there will be 900 history PhDs and there's only nine jobs posted. It's just, but, you know, again, it doesn't mean they're not gonna get jobs, right? It means that they're not going to be in those ivory tower, right? This is called the ivory tower boiler room. They're not gonna be, you know, up in the tower I mean, we we gotta we, we we gotta face the music and realize that academia is finally finally uh, a job market like all other job markets in in a capitalist economy, um, which are where there's like a lot of surplus labor, right? And you you can sort of put that very very pessimistically and said a lot of PhDs are simply not needed. Whereas the, the question of not needed is always, uh, and I'm, I'm using sort of like air quotes here, because not needed relative to what, right? Not needed, not needed what university departments are willing to pay or what sort of your edifice of the academia is willing to pay. That's one criteria, right? And that in some sense has nothing to do with scholarship. Mm -hmm. um, so social need or whatever need they may be in terms of like research and spiritual enterprise, uh, is is really different from economic uh, economic need there. Well, but, I, uh, but oh. yeah. Well, I was just going to bring up. I think everything you carry with inside yourself of the knowledge. Maybe you could speak to. Uh, you've been such a uh, presence in Brooklyn, 
um, with the current Black Lives Matter marches and using your voice um, in activist ways, like have, do you think that uh, the kind of research that you've done and um, how you've been shaped in your studies, does that, is there any correlation there with using I, your voice? I would think so. I would hope so. I would think so. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'm certainly not sort of, you know, um, more out there than many, many other people. I, I think in, in general, even though this is like an overwhelming wave of protests and a, a large movement uh, in, in American society as a whole, it's quite small, right? It's really unique in a sense that it's, it's so present and it's so persistent. Um, in a society that's that's really very spread out where there's normally zero political activity <laughs> or, or very, very little political activity. So, but I, I think, um, I mean, in in historical terms, you sort of got to recognize when 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 there's an important historical moment yeah. uh, and not, not just like, oh, you know, I want to be a part of that, but it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, I, it, it's sort of like a world historical movement, uh, mm -hmm. a world historical like transition that we're in, right? It, it, it has to do with sort of the, the tail end of, you know, European hegemony and colonialism and sort of all the things that, that come from that, you know, uncertainty about what it means to have sort of like, you know, an open society, a uh, society worth living in, um, what what are the goals for that society? You know, uh, how inclusive and equal is it? Um, yeah. uh, where does it like draw its identity from? All these are, are the big questions in the background. And I think all this sort of comes together as anxiety, but also as excitement. So in some sense, you could say that in some weird way, Black Lives Matter and the question of China are always connected, right? They're always sort of like in the same context. They're always like structured the same field. Um, of, I don't know of what we like sort of like think about, yeah. Yeah, well, but, but, yeah. I know we a metaphor that you brought up um, in our conversation before we uh, did this recording is the certain chemistry experiment, right? We're living in a pandemic globally. There's a global pandemic, but this is the pandemic has been a catalyst of so much anxieties and racial inequalities and social inequalities. And um, it's just, everything is now out there, uh, laid, laid bare for people to see, if they wanna see it, right? Some people don't, some people are trying to hide from seeing the inequalities. But, you know, those who've recognized that change needs to happen, um, you know, like how do you maybe, makes sense, especially since you are an international student. And that's such a, it's already a precarious position in a university, but everything, the constant back and forth with ICE and, you know, this uncertainty well, question, it's just like, not even are you in a precarious position, it's, I'm sure you feel that every day. I mean, I, uh, I, have, I have a green card, so I'm slightly sort of better off than others. Uh, even though nowadays with everything, so you might never know, right? But um, like a lot of my friends in the United States are international students and uh, that precarity is real. So this idea that you completely depend on sort of bureaucratic organism on top of you that doesn't really, that you have no insight in how they work. And one day they're nice and the other day they say, oh, you can't enter the country or this and that and so on. So. That, that, that is really like a vulnerability. Um, on the other hand, or, or sort of before that, right? Like coming to the US because of sort of having this double register is, is really exciting, right? It's exciting to be here. It's exciting to study here. And it's exciting also to sort of compare experiences. Um, and for me, the international student experience and also like meeting other international students and as an international student meeting Americans, it's sort of one of the richest academic and, and life experiences you can have. And I, I really fear for this country if sort of the US loses the international students, you know, by driving them away, by letting them down. It's, it's like a catastrophe, you know, not, not just in like some economic term, it's sort of like 
in sort of civilizational terms, in, in cultural terms, you know, yeah. and just, yeah, there, there's so much like, stuff that goes on in Gas House. <laughs> like, and I incorporate a lot of performing yeah. arts and especially yeah. musical theater into the classroom and have a lot of friends who are performer, performers off Broadway or touring. A lot of friends I have tour around the yeah. country. And so many are relying on performing arts to get th them through this pandemic, whether they're streaming uh, television shows or they're watching um, films. But the, actor, the actual actors and those in the industry, the stagehands and behind the scenes as well, like they're not even getting health insurance, some of them. And that kind of precarity as well, um, it's a humanities question. It's a existential question of, you know, how much are we willing to support? And when I say we, I don't mean, you know, Ignacio, Andrew, how much is a community willing to support their um, arts and culture? So, yeah, that, that brings me to what I, like what we we're talking about earlier, right? So um, the, the, the jobs in academia. So jobs in academia, but also jobs in sort of other areas in the you know, humanities and so on. Uh, or in, in the arts, um, there's, there's two sort of questions of necessity and need. One is, are there jobs out there that pay? Who will hire me, et cetera, et cetera, right? And that those are, those are um, businesses that make this decision or administrations that work like businesses. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there's this question, what is the social need? You know, does society need us or need them need these people and I think there is actually sort of a serious issue that we need to justify ourselves not in front of sort of the the, the university president with an MBA or the you know the head of um, the, the, the of Broadway no but we need to justify ourselves for society so if if we expect society for some way to you know help us support us or pay for us we need to be able to say why. So I think of, if I talk to people on the street and I tell them what they do, I do literary studies, and then I ask them, so please pay for my rent, you know, would they do it? Would they do this? And I, do I have a reason to ask that? You, I could say, I don't need to ask them because America's a free for all. I just see whatever I can get, you know, fine. But that can't be all of that. You know, I'm muddled through, but I, in some sense, I do have to say what I do is, is something that, that people want and people need and people yeah. well, can. And it's such a renaissance, want. not even just, yeah. this wasn't with the renaissance, but I just think back to when I um, took history of the renaissance and renaissance literature, um, mostly Italy, but um, in England as well, uh, that the sponsorships and how scholars were sponsored, um, how artists are sponsored, right? We think of, uh, um, you know, and I'm going to be using a lot of Western figures. So, you know, forgive me in that sense, but Michelangelo, uh, Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci, all of the Italian um, artists oh. had a family <laughs> who sponsored them. It's like that started to really happen in the performing arts with the ballet world. So uh, my background is in ballet and current principal dancers, they all have a family who sponsors them like the Smith family and the Smith family gives that dancer money. Um, well, I mean, in, in some sense, that's, we have to realize that every age before the modern age, those were, crimes. you know, if you were an artist in the Renaissance, you basically had to find a cardinal to support you <laughs> in Rome. And there's a whole thing that came with that, you know? Uh, so you were completely dependent on super wealthy aristocrats or, or sort of like people in power. And it's something that, that right now, I mean, the idea that we would all be dependent on billionaires, you know, not utopic. On billionaires, yeah, it's not a utopic it's, it's idea. Quite, it's, quite, it's quite real, but it's also yeah. quite something that it's like, like, can this ever be all? Will we ever always be sort of clientele relationship well and highly and, problematic right i mean like say say that we rely on our research from uh bloomberg the bloomberg foundation what kind of research are we going to be doing i mean they see something wrong in the type of research that exposes like you know say i expose a certain uh, a billionaire 
um, I don't know, hedge fund gone wrong. <laughs> They're going to shut it down. You know, there's the censorship issue. And so, yeah, yeah I, 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 real I, tricky. Yeah, there, there, is, there, there is sort of these, these different um, uh, models from history, how to fund, you know, the arts and how to fund like science and scholarship. And none of them are sort of like ideal, right? You go back to the Greeks uh, and the tragedies and you know, the, the plays they were performed and they were wealthy sponsors, you know, who, who did those. And they're sometimes mentioned if they were generous or like stingy, you know, they mentioned in the plays and the comedies, you know, and so on. But um, many other places around the world, you know, there's always sort of this idea of patronage and, yeah. um, or, or sort of communal organizations that do it. And we've moved quite far away from those. So, yeah, I, I, I feel very sort of um, critical of philanthropy, of the whole idea of people donating money. Because first of all, who has the ability to donate money, right? Mm -hmm. it's, so it's one thing if really everybody in the community would donate money because they really feel compelled to it. Yeah. That, that'll be sort of, like a truly communal organization, right? Where the people sort of own the theater and own the play and put it on. That's become very rare, you know, because I think our society is so lopsided that it's sort of either the, the well-to-do middle class or the super rich who are able to afford. And then they make, they make art, they make theater, they make scholarship for them, right? And for their kids. Mm -hmm. You get into Harvard if your your family donates, you know, yeah. or you you get the place to put on the place that you pay for in your scholarship. Is we haven't figured out how to do this in yeah, a new well, way. Yeah. And there's actually faculty at Stony Brook. Yeah, and they did that. They did this in the English department, but they started to create a fund for um, graduate students who are in need. But again, I mean, it's very. The generosity is, um, I credit the generosity of the faculty who donated. At the same time, what does that tell us about our system right now? That you have graduate students. So for myself, I'm in a very uh, comfortable position. That, like I'm very grateful right now. So, um, you know, I'm talking from a certain place where um, with rent and food and other resources, I'm okay because I have other financial, um, I have part-time jobs that are helping me out right now um, and grants, but it's very, oh, I mean, this is just a humanity question. It's very sad and the disillusionment is so real for, you know, those who are about to lose their housing and can't pay their rent and that, doesn't that just tell us something, something does not connect here. Something's wrong in the system. Oh, no, definitely. And I, I think um, that we have a sort of rental crisis, right? Uh, people not being able to pay their rent, which is ubiquitous now. It's like widespread in the United States. It's tens of millions of people. Um, renters always sort of be in the marginal category, you know, even though they're not marginal in terms of numbers, but they're like an afterthought thought for policymakers, you know, nobody thinks of us as a country of renters, um, you know, and so on. Um, that's quite something that you will never be able to solve with philanthropy and no amount of raising, you know, funds through, you know, pooling money or sharing money or GoFundMe or stuff like that. In our neighborhood, you know, I've seen people put on GoFundMe and say, I'm going to get evicted. I need $3,000. Please go fund me. Um, no, bless them, but it's not a solution. Sometimes you really need something else. And then, um, well, state action, you know, laws, uh, strong laws. So we don't want to lose focus on that. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we do want to keep the need. And so we want to repoliticize these questions. Uh, we want to really uh, ask them and not just ask them in a sense that, Oh, we're here, so uh, we academics, please pay for us because we want to be paid. Um, we would like to be paid, but uh, because it's a political question, we have to make the case for sort of a just funding model um, and a just sort of you know, payment model. 
so it's, it's quite a lot of work there in, in uh, moving this discussion forward. And everyone keeps using the metaphor of, um, hmm. well, with these crises, crises, and I should mention to the listeners, Ignacio has worked a lot with um, climate change activism as well with his research, but like with all of these different crises, climate change, um, racial justice, um, LGBTQ um, equality, um, uh, social um, equality, like all of these are intersecting right now. Um, they've all started to, we've seen these merging together. Um, and a lot have been talking about these little fires, like that there's like one fire on one block, one on another block, one on the other block. And, you know, so like you're saying, this GoFundMe, it might just satisfy, it might quench that one little fire, but then something's going to build up again. So how, how can there just, how can there be a certain policy? And I know, I don't think we're going to, <laughs> you and I aren't going to figure that out right now, but it, there I, has I, to I, be a change. No, I mean, in some sense, uh, I, I don't want to like harp on this GoFundMe thing, but in some sense, it's very problematic in the sense that the people who also can least afford it, you know, who are in the same situation are supposed to bail out people who are like them instead of, you know, the state sort of stepping in and there being just laws. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a major, major failure. And the sort of the most gregarious thing is people go on and said, I'm going to die if I don't get this operation, go fund me. This is a true mm -hmm. scandal, not because they're like, not like friendly people out there who wouldn't help, they, they will, you know, they, they will sometimes fund. But it's a true failure that we don't have a public health system, exactly. you know, which is the simplest exactly. thing in the world, if you, if you have it. So and you lose focus on that. If we do that, then we sort of like, you know, we, we waste this moment, this historical moment that we're in. Exactly. Well, and like yeah. there are some who can afford university tuitions, but others would really benefit from a free university package. And I think that, you know, we want to talk about, I mean, I'll say, it, I think Medicare for all, we really recognize right now the necessity with what's happening in the pandemic. And um, yeah, I, if anything, more people have started to talk about these necessities because, well, sadly, the catalyst has already happened. We're seeing the reaction. We're seeing um, things fall apart. If you want to no. use another literary illusion. So it's interesting because things fall apart is also a question. It's also a story about colonialism, right? Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a story about uh, the, the fall of the old order and the old way of life under sort of the, the coming of colonialism and the transformation of that, a traumatic transformation. So we've sort of feel the fall, the falling things apart right now of the way we've done. And if we look at it, you know, there, there's, there's sort of these long trends that are like sort of hidden and they're out of daily life. You have to really like go into big history to mm -hmm. see them. But um, so where we're now um, in terms of like the catalyst, right? One moment is, is sort of bringing these things to the consciousness. But I think what's really gonna change it is, is sort of this, the awareness of all of this becoming ubiquitous and being sort of part, becoming part of daily practice, not just in terms of like wokeness or just like, like thinking about it and recognizing it, but um, in terms of sort of every decision and every sort of public decision that everyone makes, you know, whether they go shopping, whether, what, they, what they do, mm -hmm. you know, how they conceive of things. If like all of that is sort of the grounds in which it, and the way, so my, my sort of impression of American politics is that you can't just like think politics is what, it, what is about elections and about candidates and not even about sort of like programmatic statements that are read once every four years. There have to be something that's, that everybody knows, people like agenda, like a 10 point agenda that everybody knows. Everybody knows it's important, everybody cares about, you know? And there isn't really a discrepancy there between sort of small personal scale and you know the 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 large big scale. So when you said I, I I was like working with environmental stuff, we had a reading group on the on uh, eco criticism, which is sort of um, 
the thought of bringing literary criticism, uh, applying literary criticism or bringing it together with the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. And I think it's that thing. You have to sort of sharpen the awareness. You have to bring the thing in, the, the, this crisis in, into everything, mm -hmm. right? Um, everybody has to know about it, even if they don't agree. Um, that's the way sort of you really sort of move things forward. Yeah. And yeah. I have to say, when I... I'll show you my bias right now. And I think it's important. Um, I started to do this in my life to show my journey and my transformation. Because at first when I heard about eco-criticism when I first came in 2014, yeah, I didn't understand how it necessarily would relate to LGBTQ discrimination or um, attacks against women. But then now seeing the current this climate crisis in full effect, whether it be with the hurricanes in the South or the wildfires in California, that all of these inequalities merge together. Like it's, it's not like one operates in a vacuum. Uh, right. So, and it's sort of easy um, to put one thing aside and says, oh, and by the environment, nature, it's, it's just always there, you know, it's sort of, it never, it's in the foreground, but you have to sort of bring it into the foreground a little bit with everything you do, because it is something that's, uh, that's quite important for us. Uh, yeah, it's like, so maybe, it's, it's crucial, yeah. Maybe to end, I always, each interview, I'm gonna, we're gonna end on this question, which is, where, where do you see the optimism for yourself? Oh, right. I'm a I'm a perennial optimist. Right. <laughs> I'm so, very optimistic. So, what's some what's one thing you can give to our yeah. listeners of what's giving you hope right now? Is there something something in your daily life that you turn to for inspiration? New York City gives me hope. Brooklyn gives me hope. My neighborhood gives me hope. Um, the way people are here in the city right now, uh, you can see everybody's anxiety, but you can also see everybody's resilience and just the fact that everybody's here so it's, it's one of the places it's one of the places where uh sort of human experiment this sort of grand historical experience that started with people from different places come together yeah uh and uh and they figured out across you know nationalistic lines like lines of like race, racist chauvinism but also across lines of you know uh, class um and Figuring out doesn't mean they, they, they accept sort of the status quo, right? That's where sort of the, the, the anxiety comes in. But mm -hmm. uh, they're not running away from the questions. Uh, I think that's, that's really good. And it's quite inspiring. You know, people do, are supportive of each other. You well, know? I'm inspired you, you, by yeah. seeing everything in the city. And also yeah. for the listeners too, I know some listening right now, they may believe these fear-mongering articles that have been written that New York City's under siege, or I don't, there's, there's been some real uh, heightened articles of panic and fear that talk about uh, not living in New York City anymore. And again, that speaks to a certain class perspective and racial perspective and why the New York Times, we, this is my thing, so we don't have to harp on it, but the New York, the New York Times, they keep doing these Hampton real estate articles that are, yeah. um, you know, uh, very privileged and also all about like these white, white wealthy families who are moving to the Hamptons, which again is not, what is that, 0.2% of New York City? Um, but it's quite interesting because it's taken on this, um, a lot of friends of mine who would go to the city say, you know, we shouldn't be going anymore. And I ask why they have this certain um, attitude and it comes from not living it themselves, right? They're believing these fear mongering um, uh, ideas. So I think it's just, I'm inspired by just hearing you, Ignacio, coming from Brooklyn and understanding the on the ground dynamics. And, you know, I think it's, I'm so thankful that you're our first interviewee because you, you know, you're showing the resilience right now. And like you said, there's a lot of anxiety on people's faces um, and panic, 
that they're experiencing, but there's also a lot of love and hope that they're experiencing together as well. I, I think you've got to come and see to believe it, right? I, I understand if uh, in a suburb, you're already pretty isolated by default. Mm -hmm. So, and you really lose touch with, um, you know, other places and with people. So if your only connection to the world is really the news and the internet, uh, it's very easy to sort of fall into this like trap, right? Mm -hmm. you, you don't really get this like direct experience anymore. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of cities for that reason, you know, because for me, that's where it's at. Where, yeah, well, and I hear yeah. a siren right now, so we're brought yeah. back into the city. Um, yeah. Well, thank you, Ignacio. Um, this is thank the you, Andrew. end of the interview. Yeah. Um, so we really appreciate it.